0: This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. If you do not have a Bible with you, we'd love to be able to give you one. You can go ahead and just shoot your hand up in the air. We'll make sure to get one to you. I want to make sure everyone has a copy of Scripture in front of them today because this is the book that we get into. This is the book that we go through. This is the book that we believe, although written by people, was inspired by God. And so this is the book that we give our careful attention to week after week here. We are starting a new series in the book of Colossians this morning. And so if you're new to our church, this is actually a great time to be uh, starting with us. This is typically what we do as a church. We pick one book of the Bible and make our way through it systematically. We do this because, as I said, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so we want to study it in the way that he originally inspired it to be written. We want to let him set the agenda for what we talk about, and what we learn about, and what we understand about who he is, who we are, and what life is all about. This letter of Colossians was written by a man named Paul to a church in the ancient Greek city of Colossae. It was known as one of Paul's prison epistles because he wrote this while he was in prison at Rome. Paul had never been to Colossae. It was one of the few places that he wrote a letter to that he had not personally been to. But one of his ministers in the gospel, a man named Epaphras, had been there. And this church was about eight years old. and It's actually roughly the age of our church. And so far, it had been going pretty well. There was much to be commended for in this church. And yet, there were a few issues that started to creep up that caused Epaphras to leave Colossae to go visit Paul in Rome to get his advice about how to handle the issues that the church was facing. And so this letter is Paul's response to what was going on in Colossae at that time. What was happening was that the Colossians, and we'll see Paul address this specifically in chapter 2, is they were beginning, not to deny the Christian faith at all, but they're beginning to add other things into the Christian faith. Uh, Their their, their idea was Jesus is good, but he could use a little garnish. He could could use a little flavor added in to kind of fill out his teaching, some other philosophies and ideas from different things. What they were starting to think in this church was that true spiritual life is found when we have Jesus plus other things. And so what was happening in in Colossae was that the sufficiency of Jesus, the idea that Jesus really is enough, that was under attack and was coming into question. And As I think about that, I think, man, what a great place for us to be in today. Because I think this idea can very much creep into our mindset as well. We can think Jesus is good, but Jesus plus, we need these other things in order to really experience the deeper spiritual life. And so Jesus is good, but Jesus plus, you need to be actively involved and aware of these various political things. Make sure you do it uh, the right way, or the left way, I should say, depending on which way you lean. Jesus is good, plus you need to make sure you are involved in these social causes. These are the things you need to be trumpeting and, let's be honest, probably virtue signaling all over social media. Jesus is good, but Jesus plus you need to be able to express your individualism. You need to be able to be free to be you and however you define yourself. Jesus is good, but Jesus plus your financial needs need to be secure. You need to have that locked down and taken care of. Jesus is good, but it's Jesus plus being woke, or Jesus plus being anti-woke, depending on where you come at from that conversation. It can be Jesus plus yoga, Jesus plus the right diet, Jesus plus essential oils. Like, there's all these things that we can add, some of which can might be helpful, like You know, essential oils actually are something I use sometimes They can be helpful. So I'm not saying these things are bad, but the problem is we begin to smuggle them in and think that we need these things in order to experience deeper spiritual life. It's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus. But here is the whole point of the book of Colossians. In verse 1, Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ, which he is saying right from the outset, he's here to represent Jesus. He then thanks God, the Father of Christ, in verse 3. He praises Christ for his global work in verses 4 through 8. He calls these Christians to live a life in a manner worthy of Christ, verses 9 through 14. He goes on to give what is the great, known as the great Christ hymn in verses 15 through 23. He just starts sharing about how great Jesus Christ is. In chapter 1, 28, it says, him we proclaim that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, you have received Christ. Verse 17, in chapter 2, he says, all things belong to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3, your life is hidden in Christ. 3, 4, Christ will appear in glory and you with him. Colossians 3.11, Christ is all in all. Colossians 3.15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 3.18 through 4.1, Christ defines every relationship that we could possibly have. 4.3. Pray that you might be able to share about Christ. And then it closes 47 7 through 18, thanking God for faithful ministers of Christ. Again and again and again, Paul is making this point over and over and over again. It really is all about Christ. It really is. Christ really is enough. The message of Colossians is not that we need more than Jesus Christ. What we really need is more of Jesus Christ. Spiritual vibrancy does not come from Jesus plus other things. It comes from only ever Jesus and him alone. Christ truly is enough. He truly is sufficient for all things. Jesus Christ is meant to be the sun at the center of our universe, and everything in our life is only able to be kept in balance and beautiful when he is the center part of everything in our life, and his light shines, shapes, and informs everything that we do. That's what Colossians is about, and that's what we're going to be exploring over these next few months together. There's nothing more important that you need and that I need than to know and trust, embrace, and daily apply the idea that Christ truly is enough. So let's begin in Colossians chapter 1. Just reading the first two verses today. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God's word says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's by our heads. I want to encourage you to have a time right now, just for a minute, to pray and ask God to speak to you through his word. Let's just have a time of prayer for one moment between you and the Lord. Now, please pray for me, that I will be able to speak clearly and in a way that is helpful to you. God, thank you for your word, which is a light shining in darkness, the true revelation of the true God, here to inform our minds and bend our hearts towards you. May your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words to be written, come now and freshly fill us so that they might be illuminated to our hearts. And by your power, may a far better sermon be heard than the one that I'm actually going to preach. We praise for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul starts this letter that's all about Christ, he starts with drawing the Colossians' attention to their identity in Christ. Notice what he says these people are in Colossae, but Paul does not say they're just in Colossae. He says they are in Christ at Colossae. So here's what we need to understand if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then no matter where you might be geographically or physically, we're always in Christ spiritually. Last week, I was preaching at a, another church, and they were asking me, some people there that I know, so do, do you like where you live? You've been in Philly for a while. Do you like where you live? Now, the reality is, I love where I live. I think the city is the best place in the world to raise a family. I'm so grateful to be here. Nowhere else I'd rather be. I love where I live. But ultimately, I really love where I live because where I live and where you live, if you place your faith in Jesus, is you live in Christ. That's, that, 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 he is ultimately where we live, He is our identity. He is our identity. I just want to give a little visual to kind of describe what what Paul is talking about here. So right now, this ball is in my hand, right? This ball, think about representing our life. So this, this is where we are physically. When we place our faith in Jesus, now we're still where we are, but we are now in Christ where we are. Right, And Christ now informs everything about us. And this is important to understand. This is the doctrine of known as our union with Christ. Everything about our salvation comes from the fact that our life is hid in Christ. The reason that God does not count our sin against us is not because we are sinless, not because we somehow find a way to pay him back. No, it's because we are in Christ. And so his death gets applied against our debt of death. In other words, God doesn't see us and what we deserve. He sees Christ and what he's earned. The reason that we will rise to new life is why? Because we are in Christ, and he is resurrected, and so too, we, we die, we'll be resurrected like him and enjoy life with God forever. Every person who places their faith in Jesus is united to Jesus. We are in him. And this has massive implications for all kinds of things about us, but specifically, what Paul is drawing our attention to here in these opening verses is that, Our identity of being in Christ is not just something that reconciles us to God, it's something that actually brings us into relationship with one another. Notice, Paul specifically calls here Timothy his brother. There was no physical or legal relationship between them, but there was a spiritual one. He goes on to call these people in Colossae his brothers, and the word there that's used as brothers is a word in Greek that can actually be translated brothers and sisters. That's how we should be thinking about this. He is saying, you are my brothers and sisters. And he's saying this to people he had never met before. Paul is using family terms. What's the big deal about that? Well, part of knowing who we are in Christ and what we've been given by Christ is knowing who we are together in Christ. Part of of knowing who we are in Christ And part of enjoying what we've been given by Christ is knowing who we are together in Christ. We cannot fully understand and embrace our identity in Jesus if we don't understand and embrace our shared identity in Jesus. Or in other words, my title for this morning's sermon is also going to be the main point of this sermon. It's simply this, Jesus makes us family. Jesus makes us family. So Paul is drawing the Colossians' attention to in this text, and that's why I draw our attention to this morning. Jesus makes us family. I want us to see in these two verses, just two points. One, our family bond in Christ, and then two, our family name in Christ. Our family bond in Christ, and our family name in Christ. First, our family bond in Christ. I don't know about you, but if you've been reading the Bible for any length of time, it can be very easy to kind of rush past these greetings pretty quickly to want to get into the meat of things. Uh, But one of the things you need to understand is that often in all these greetings, Paul is tipping his hand theologically uh, for for where he's going to be going and a major theme he's going to be drawing out for the entire letter. And, And what we need to understand is when this letter was written to an ancient reader into their hearing, they would have been shocked and scandalized by the fact that Paul would call a person like Timothy his brother. Here's what you need to understand. Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees, they were the top dogs in the Jewish religious system. They were the, the theological elite. Think royalty, and you'll start getting the idea of how Pharisees functioned in Jewish society. Right? They, Jewish society was a theocracy, and so if you were at the top of the theological line, uh, you know now theologians don't get much respect, uh, but, but in that culture, it really was like that was, they, they, they were it. They were it. Where they showed up, that's where the party was happening. And so there was no one who was more celebrated than a Pharisee in Jewish culture. Timothy, when you hear about his story in letters that Paul then wrote to him, First and Second Timothy, Timothy, he had a Jewish mother, but he had a Gentile father, which was a big no-no in that culture. To be seen as mixed between those two different races was to be seen as a disgusting thing by both societies. And so Timothy would have been accepted by the Gentiles because he was Jewish. And Gentiles literally would call Jewish people dogs back in those days. And he wouldn't have been accepted by the Jews because he had Gentile blood, and therefore he would have been unclean. And so Timothy was caught between two worlds. He was a man of no place, a man of no people. Everyone would have disowned him. And yet here, Paul is calling him brother, which is absolutely scandalous. Paul's going to go even further in chapter 4, verse 9, and he's going to call Onesimus, who was a slave, his brother. And not only his brother, but his beloved brother and minister in the Lord. This isn't Paul just, well, I'm going to not fit into cultural norms. He's some kind of like cultural, you know, social justice warrior. That's not what's happening here at all. No, no. we need to remember that before Paul met Jesus, what did he do? He, he made a name for himself by taking out people who were considered to be polluting the Jewish faith. And so before Paul met Jesus, he would have been the first in line to have despised Timothy and all that Timothy represented of religious compromise and impurity. Paul would have naturally hated Timothy. But something had changed in Paul. Paul's identity was no longer as a Pharisee. His identity was being in Christ. And that identity creates a family bond towards other people in Christ. And here's how that works. For anyone united to Jesus, Jesus' father becomes our father. Contrary to what we might think in our popular cultural understanding, God is not naturally our father. The Bible does not present him that way. The Bible presents God naturally as our creator. And so the natural relationship we have with God is that we are created by him to live our lives for him. But that does not mean that we actually get to approach him And have any kind of family relationship with him. But when we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees his son Jesus. And so in Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God. That's why in the Old Testament, there's not a single individual who ever calls God Father. Because that's not how people could relate to God before Jesus came. But when Jesus comes, he completely shifts that paradigm. And tells us, no, we can now address God, not just as creator, we can address him as a father who loves us and cherishes us. Why? Because our identity is in Christ. And since Christ is God's son, guess what that makes us? That makes us God's sons and daughters. But here's what that also then means. If God's our father, guess what? We are not just his son and daughter, we have a whole bunch of siblings. In other words, when we are in Christ, we aren't the only ones in there. There's a whole lot of other people in there. And so Paul calls Timothy his brother because their shared identity in Christ took priority over every other identity marker that they had. And the people in Colossae, even though Paul had never met them, he considered them his brothers and sisters too. Paul didn't need to share things in common with them. He didn't need to have similar lived experiences. He didn't need to have the same demographics. He did not need to have the same ethnic backgrounds. No, Christ was enough to make them family. That's what Jesus does. Jesus makes us family. And so whether you have felt loved by your earthly family or not, whether you felt valued or not, whether you feel like you belong or not, when you are in Christ, then you're in his family, which is his church. And so I really want you to hear me on this. When you come here, we are what our name says. We have to be. We have to be Christ Church. And so what that means is this must be a people where anyone can come and they will feel loved, they will feel like they matter, and they will feel like they belong. Regardless of what family is meant for you, here's what it means In Christ it means that everyone is welcomed and everyone is wanted. And so we are a family in Christ where we forgive one another as we've been forgiven by Christ. We're a family in Christ where we show grace to one another as we've been shown grace by Christ. We're a family in Christ where your burden is my burden, your joy my joy, your sorrow my sorrow. We carry one another on our hearts because Christ carried us on his. We, we are, we are a, a community in Christ, a family, where we don't gossip about one another. No, we talk to one another, and we work our stuff out. We show no favorites in this family. Regardless of how someone looks, regardless of what they do, regardless of how old or how young they are, We come together as a family, not based on the same ethnicity or demographics or any other commonality. We come together in Christ. And so we should be a family that prioritizes time together. We should be a family that's not too busy to be with one another. We should be a family that's not regularly and repeatedly absent from the family meal, which is our time together on Sunday mornings. There is no more precious time than what we are doing right now why because this is the time we're all together as a family and we need to be together we need to seek to intentionally connect with one another as a family and so when we come together we look to encourage one another we look to pray for one another we look to care for one another and not just one another but we look for those who maybe are not yet part of this family We look for people who are new, whether it be an individual or a person, and and we seek to intentionally talk to them regardless of whether we think we have something in common or not. We get to know them and we invite them out maybe to to a deeper relationship by going out to lunch with them. When was the last time you did that on a Sunday afternoon instead of just hurrying off to your other thing, right? Or, Or we invite them out to our community groups, places where we get to know each other more intimately as we share meals in one another's Homes. We're a family, and so we want to see other people become part of this family. See, what we're seeing in these opening verses is that we need to reframe how we typically think of church. Church is not a place that we attend, church is a people that we're a part of. It's a family. We are bonded together as family in Christ, and so our spiritual lives are never just about me and Jesus, they're about we and Jesus. God has done more then just save you as an isolated individual and so to eternally perpetuate your loneliness. He has saved you to be part of a family, to be part of a people, to be part of his church. Listen, if we just like the Lone Ranger idea, we're going to be disappointed when we get to heaven because we're not going to be the only ones there. We're going to be there as God's family, enjoying our Father with our brother Christ and our crazy uncle, the Holy Spirit. No, I'm joking. And the Holy Spirit, you know? We're going to be enjoying God and his trying nature for all eternity, and we're going to be enjoying one another as a family bonded together through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has given us a family bond. To be in Christ is to be called to be in relationship with one another. He gives us a family bond, and he gives us a family name. Let's look at our family name in Christ. Paul not only says that they are brothers and sisters, But he also says who they are as brothers and sisters. Notice, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. That word faithful means full of faith. So he's speaking to people who are full of faith in Jesus. And when you're full of faith in Jesus, being in Jesus gives you this name, saint. Which means holy one. And so I know that in the Roman Catholic Church, there's an extensive process by which someone can become a saint, you know, it's usually long after they're dead, Um, and and I'm grateful. It's important to actually celebrate people who are heroes of the faith, and so um, I'm grateful for history and knowing those things, Uh, but biblically, here's the process for becoming a saint. It's it's really extensive. You ready? Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, you just got upgraded today to sainthood, right? That's it. You put your faith in Jesus, and you become a saint of God, because you're in him, and so the Father sees you as in him. And so since Christ is holy, therefore, anyone who is in Christ, guess what? You are now holy. Not because you're perfect, but because Jesus is, and so when you're in him, God sees you as him. And so in Christ, you're a saint. I was traveling one time, and was with a friend who said, hey, let's go check out this really cool church building. He said, I heard in their courtyard, they have all these statues of the saints, and it's really powerful experience to go and pray amongst the saints. I said, "Hey man, like I'm willing to go check that out. I love history, love to check that out. That'd be great. it sounds really great." But I get to pray amongst the saints every Sunday. No statues needed. Because we are the saints of God. We are the holy people together in Christ. Now, typically when we hear that word holy, we think in terms of like some kind of moral purity. Impurity is certainly an implication of holiness, but it's not the full range of its meaning. Holiness means, most literally, to be set apart. It's a word that's used extensively throughout the Old Testament. It's actually usually used to refer to things and not people. So various items in the holy temple, so the holy temple was itself a holy thing that had been set apart for God. And then various items in it would be called holy. So you'd have, for example, you'd have a holy cup. It would look like a normal cup, but it would not be normal any longer. It would be a cup that had been set apart for a sacred use. In order to be set apart for a sacred use, it would have to go through a ritual cleansing process so that all of its impurities could be removed from it. And so for a thing to be holy, it would have to be spiritually clean and spiritually useful. And to be a holy person is to be someone who's been cleansed by Jesus so that you can live a life that's set apart usefully for him. That's what it means to be a holy one, to be a saint in Christ. When we are in Christ, we become a set-apart people. We are cleansed, and we are given a sacred purpose. And so friends, I just want to remind you today, you placed your faith in Jesus. In him, you have been cleansed of your sins. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We are not perfect people, but Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. And he gave his life to pay for our life of sin. And so we are cleansed not through what we do. We are cleansed through faith in what Christ has done. I love how theologian Kwame Badeko says it this way. Saints are not perfect people, but people who have been perfectly forgiven by God. Saints are not perfect people, but people who have been perfectly forgiven by God. In other words, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not for good that I have done. No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that washes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Through Jesus' blood, God has set us apart as people who are clean in Christ. We are clean in him, and then we are called to live for him. To be a holy person is to be someone who's been cleansed and set apart for a sacred purpose. Holy people are called to live holy lives. Living holy lives means living in obedience to God, bringing our wills in conformity to his will as revealed through his word. We are to be set apart from the rest of the world, which can be so often led by so many different kinds of agendas. The Christian's agenda is one, what is going to please God? This is what we care about. This is what controls us. This is what compels us. We come to God's revealed word in scripture and we say show me, speak to me, mold me, guide me. I don't want to bring my thoughts and impose them to you. I want to learn your thoughts and think them after you. But this kind of living can be hard to do, can't it? Be hard to do because our world doesn't actually live this way and so there are forces around us all the time that are pulling us away from wanting to live God's way. Uh, Certainly there's a great enemy of our soul who wants to tempt us to not live this way. And we have an enemy that still exists in our own hearts. We are new creations in Christ. but until we get to be with Christ forever in heaven, we are people who can be conflicted because the old has gone, the new has come. But the old can still sometimes hang around a little bit in how we think about things. And so very often it can be hard for us, even though we are holy people, to live holy lives because so many places and so many times God's will for us can rub against what we want for ourselves. And so when that happens for you, what gives? What God has spoken in his word comes against something that you want for yourself. What gives? God calls us to be holy people who live unyieldingly to his will and his will only. When our desires come in conflict with God's word, what gives is our desires. God's word is what is meant to shape us and show us that ultimately, at the end of the day, our desires, which are outside his word, are not going to lead us anywhere good. They're going to lead us, as much as we might think that, oh yeah, you know, our culture tells us, oh, you need to embrace these things in you because they'll lead to a greater freedom for you. No, the Bible says they'll lead to death. Here's what's going to lead to life, following God's will, his way is best. And so as God calls us to live as holy people, he isn't calling us to be these austere, you know, people who are denying themselves good things. No, he's calling us into a truly beautiful life, a life of freedom and abundance as we live in the goodness of what he wants for us. But so often, isn't it hard because of the world, because of our enemy, because of our own sinful flesh, so often it can be hard for us to live and truly embrace the idea that God's will is for our best. We can be like the cautions and we can struggle with that. We can struggle with that. As we make our way through this letter, we're going to see various ways that the Colossians church struggled with living holy lives for God. There's so many ways that we can struggle to live holy lives for God. But here's what's interesting. Here's what I think we need to notice in these opening verses. Paul does not start by correcting the Colossians for their unholiness. He does not start this letter, which to be clear, is meant to be given to them to change some things in them. He does not start this change process by telling them more about what they need to do. No, he starts by reminding them of who they are. Before he calls them to change what they do, he reminds them of the changed identity that they have in Christ. Because the most powerful way to change your behavior is to start by changing your understanding of yourself. The most powerful way to change your behavior is to start by changing your understanding of yourself. This is why almost every single New Testament letter, with the exception of like Galatians, starts with an identity statement that is directly linked to these things that these people need to change about themselves. So remember, we just got done in the book of Jude. How did Jude start? Jude started by saying, you are called and beloved and kept by God. And so because this is who you are, keep the faith, contend for the faith. I could just go down the list and illustrate this with book after book in the New Testament. But the point is that the Bible regularly and repeatedly starts by affirming our identity in Christ before it moves on to correct us for ways that we're not living for Christ. Because the most powerful way to change what we do is to change who we think we are. What's interesting, there's actually a lot of scientific studies that back this up. I love when like the world figures out something that God said like 2,000 years ago. Um, And so Harvard has this study where they show that the most effective way to help people lose weight and keep it off is not to get them to do a diet, but rather to help them begin to do things that, that reinforce an identity that they're actually healthy people. And healthy people don't eat bad food. So it's not about saying no to things. It's about saying, this is who I am now. And it's amazing. You start thinking about someone's simple thing. Like, you start working out. If you start working out, you'll naturally start eating better. Because by working out, you are reinforcing an identity that I'm not someone who is unhealthy. I'm someone who is healthy and so therefore I make good food choices. So the food choices, the behavior was changed not by actually telling them to stop eating that and start eating that. It wasn't that at all. It was just doing other things that reinforced a different identity about them. And go down the list. They've done the same things like with the best way to learn an instrument is not just to be told to do an instrument but start doing things to make yourself think of yourself as a musician. And the best way to stop smoking is not just to try really hard to stop smoking but to learn how to do things to stop thinking of yourself as a smoker think of yourself as a non-smoker and non-smokers don't smoke. Right, like go down the list. And again, I love when secular studies figures things out that God said a long time ago. The point that's being made to us here in this verse is that we want to live more holy in our lives. If if we are very aware that there are places in our lives where what God wants for us rubs against what we want for ourselves, what we need is not just greater willpower, okay, I'm really going to stop it today. No, what we need is to know our identity in Jesus. Now, you might need to take some practical steps. Like if you struggle with alcohol, stop going to the bar. You know, it doesn't matter how much you know you're in Christ. Like, stop going to the bar, that's not a good idea for you. You know, there might be some practical steps we need to do, but what really is going to change us is believing and embracing the work that Jesus has done for us to change our identity. In other words, the way we grow in living holy lives is by believing that we are holy people. If you want to grow in sinning less, believe what God says about you being a saint more. We are not defined by our sin. It truly is true, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that the old, if anyone was in Christ, he's new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And as a pastor, I'm just so aware that I need to hear this and that we need to hear this regularly and repeatedly. Because it's very easy for us to make a list of ways we need to change. It's very hard for us to believe what Christ has actually done to change who we are. It's very easy for us to be more aware of ways that we fall short than aware of how Christ really is enough. And So if you placed your faith in Christ, I just want to remind you today that in Jesus, you are not your sin. If you placed your faith in Christ, that means that God sees you as he sees Christ. And the stain of your sin cannot be seen when you are in Jesus because the radiance of his righteous glory far outshines any wrongs that you have done. That's not an excuse for you to go out and sin and do whatever you want. That's a reminder to be the saint that God has created you to be in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are not defined by your faithlessness. You are defined by God's faithfulness. When you are in Christ, you are not seen in your shame, but you are clothed in his splendor. When you are in Christ, you might be broken, but in him you are beautiful. You might have regrets, but in Christ you are redeemed. And his grace truly is greater than your guilt. His power truly is more than your weakness. His steadfast love truly is more than your unsteady heart. And part of how God is going to call you to fight your sin, part of how he's going to call you to seek to live a faithful, holy life set apart for him is not by saying, no, that sin is not good for me, but by believing in Christ, that's not who I am anymore. And so the next time you are tempted to lie, remember that in Christ you don't lie because you are no longer a liar. Jesus is the truth, and so in him you speak the truth. The next time you are tempted to lash out in anger, you remember that Jesus is a person of peace. And so since you are in him, you do not need to be controlled by your emotions, but instead can be controlled by him and what he's done for you. And so in Christ, you can respond with peace and not anger. We fight against our sin by believing who God says we are. In Christ, we are not defined by our sinfulness, we're defined by his saintliness. And here's the really good news about this. Because all these things come in Christ, this means that anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. It doesn't matter if you're hearing this for the first time or you've heard this for a thousandth time. If you place your faith in Christ, then God offers a trade. Your shame and your wrongs for his holiness. And if there's anyone listening to this who's yet to put their faith in Christ, I do pray that today would be that day the day you truly trust him and embrace him as your savior. You truly believe in what he's done for you on the cross. You truly believe that he rose from the dead. And not just these as intellectual facts. No, you believe that these things are existential truths for your life that make a difference in who you are right now, right here. I pray that you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you might be saved today. Pray. God has given you that opportunity. I pray you take it. Friends, in Christ, we have a name. We have a name. Our name is Holy. And it is our name. It is our name together. It's our family name. Holiness isn't just about who we are indiv- individually, this is about who we are corporately. And so, part of why we gather together as a church is so that we can encourage one another, as scripture tells us in Hebrews. Encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near, so you might not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, only thing Satan can do to us right now is lie about who we are. If you're in Christ, he can't change your status, but he can make you doubt that status. He can try to deceive you into thinking that you're a sinner, and so you just got to keep on sinning. That's what Satan's willing to do. And so one of the reasons that we come together as a church is so that we might fight against his lies by being reminded of the truth. Listen, you can't remind yourself of the truth as well as we can remind one another of the truth. That's why Christians alone do not do well alone. We need the family of the church so that we can come together because the Christ in you is stronger than the Christ in me. And so I need to hear and see the Christ in you so that I can be grown in my own relationship with Christ. We need one another. We come together, and we can only live out these holy lives as we come together, which is why there's nothing Satan would love for you to do more than have your own personal quiet times with God, your own personal prayer times, your own personal relationship with the Lord, and stay absent from his church. Because over time, a personal faith is a faith that will always be snuffed out. Now, hear me clearly. You need to have a personal faith. Right? You can't live vicariously through others. You need to have your own personal faith in Jesus. I can't believe Jesus for you. You need to believe him for yourself. We are saved by our faith, not our parents' faith, kids. We're saved by our faith in Christ. You need to believe in Christ personally. I'm just saying you can't believe in him only personally. We also need to believe in him together corporately. Part of why we come together as a church is so that we might be reminded of what is real because it's so easy as we go through the grit and grind of daily life just to forget who we are. Washing dishes for the thousandth time at a job that we hate after a long day. What is this all about? And how easy we can stumble into sin in those moments. And so we come together in this holy moment so we can carry this with us back into those mundane moments. we reminded, I might be washing these dishes. But I'm not a dishwasher. I'm a son of God. Part of a people of God. And so I can do this right now, even washing this dish that has this crumb that will just not get off. I can do this to the praise of the Lord because I'm his child. We come together to remind ourselves of our family name, which is the holy people of God. And so as we come to a close, Christ Church, I just want to remind you of who you are. I want to remind you of who we are together. And I want to encourage you to consider just one thing, one thing by way of application. It's simply this. What's one thing you can do this week to seek to live out our shared identity together? It's one thing you can do this week to be part in the deeper way of the people of God? Maybe it's a text message that you need to send. It's a conversation that you should have. Maybe it's a coffee that you should go get with someone. Maybe it is finally getting off the sidelines and joining a community group or being part of a Bible study. Being in a place where you can fellowship with people throughout the week. Sundays are great, but they're not enough. We need these things throughout the week as well. Maybe, Maybe there's a relationship with a brother or sister here or maybe part of another church that you need to extend some forgiveness. It's hard to have a relationship with the Lord when there's anger in our heart towards someone else who's our family in Christ. And so maybe there's forgiveness you need to extend. Maybe there's a love that you need to ask God to help you give because, man, it's so hard to love this person right now. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but prayerfully, I just want to encourage you to think about one thing to do. What's one thing you can do to remind yourself that it's not just us and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. Jesus came to make us a holy family together in him. And so my encouragement to myself and to all of us is to be intentional And embracing that identity and living out that calling for the good of our souls and the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray.